Hello, welcome to the China Digital Tech Podcast, part of the Gumbay Podcast Network. I'm your host, Paul Lin, and my job is to engage innovators, entrepreneurs, and leading figures in the digital technology space who are doing business in China. We want to bring you a fresh perspective on who these people are, uncover their formulas for success, and what insights they could share for others as they embark on their own personal journey. We're happy to say that we're a Chinese company because we know we deliver great products, and customers and the industry will recognize great product, no matter where it comes from in the world. Sometimes ignorance is best because if you know everything, you if you knew all the the roadblocks that were going to hit you, maybe we would never have gone and done it. Because American companies don't go over to Germany and sell to Germans because it's going to help solidify their sales messaging back in the United States of America. But the, the development cycle that China is still currently on it necessitates that, especially when you move out of tier one and tier two cities in in China and move into some of those smaller cities where customers are still heavily influenced by, you know, Western cultures and, and Western desires. Our special guest today is Joseph Castanti, Director of International Strategy and Corporate Development at New, also called Xiaonu, which literally translates into Little Bull. Thank you for coming into our show today, Joseph. Hey, Paul. Thank you very much for having me here, and I, I really appreciate the opportunity to speak to you and, and, and to your entire audience. Awesome. We're going to have a lot of fun today. All right. So Joseph has been actively involved in the tech startup and venture space. As he is a founding member of one of the most successful entrepreneurial and professional development communities in China, called Next Step Startup Studio, where their sole purpose was to accelerate tech and FMB projects in China by offering hands-on support and access to fundraising and capital. Joseph has successfully built a number of different startups in the past and acts as an advisor, coach, and mentor for fellow entrepreneurs in their goal of driving growth for their own companies. Joseph has been in China for over 22 years now, and at Xiaonu for the last six. Xiaonu is the largest mobility company in the world, and their main product is electric scooters. They have three different models that are the traditional sort of moped-style electric scooter, one stand-up version, and then one that's a lot more bicycle-focused with electric battery built into it. Me and my wife have three scooters at home, and our Xiaonu is probably by far our favorite because of the portable battery technology. Joseph, our first question: I was really surprised to read that Xiaonu is the largest mobility company in the world. How did it get here? Wow, that's a, that's a big question to unpack for you. So I think the best way to look at us is as one of the, the largest urban mobility EV companies in the world, is because all of our products are focused in on solving urban transportation problems. We six seven years ago now in early 2014, new started as a sketch. Uh, on a simple piece of paper by a couple of designers, and it rapidly turned into venture funding, and then actually full-blown manufacturing a year after that. So, from a sketch in 2014 to its own manufacturing in, in the summer of 2015, where New actually launched through a, a crowdfunding campaign in China on JD.com, where it, it amassed thousands and thousands of customers almost overnight. And, and this was by no like stroke of genius or, or or luck. It was pretty well planned into 
kind of tap into a marketplace of, of customers that were not served yet in an already very large electric motorcycle and moped market in China. To give your listeners a, a kind of a, a bigger picture and frame of reference, you know, every year there's more than 25 million electric mopeds, electric bikes being sold in China. So most of those 25 million electric mopeds and scooters were being powered by lead acid uh, batteries. Okay, so which are heavy, usually not removable um, from the vehicle, and actually don't last very long. Probably have a half life of one, one and a half years at most. The so customers were having to regularly re- recycle through the new scooters. The quality of their battery was very low, which didn't give them really good performance. And then the overall look of their vehicle, to be honest, to be very frank, is it wasn't very nice. Uh, so we stepped in and actually brought basically an Apple design type of product, an Apple Samsung level design of product. So good industrial design. It was fully connected. So it was 24 seven connected to an app. So you could see the location of your vehicle. You could see the state of charge of your battery and a whole number. You can see recent rides and a whole number of things. And, and most importantly was that removable lithium ion battery, which allowed people to you know, carry a lightweight, maybe 10 kilogram or lighter battery up to their home to be charged inside their house, rather than having to find a way to throw an electric cord out a window down onto the street to be able to plug into their 50 kilogram lead acid battery that was almost impossible to, to carry upstairs or into your home. So I think it was bringing a, it was a product market fit at that moment in time. People had a higher level of disposable income. We tapped into that. We gave them a product felt more comfortable and, and at a home with. It was much closer to the design of their iPhone or Samsung that they were carrying around. And, and it was a little bit smart, smart enough that it gave the, the basic information about their vehicle that made them feel safe, especially around the GPS tracking. So they knew if, if their vehicle was being stolen, they knew where their battery was. It was some basic things like that. And then where we were able to tap in and grow from there, I believe was the execution strategy of retail, both online and retail. So we started out by being able to sell all online, which was really unique. That wasn't really happening in China. And that allowed us to tap into a whole number of different markets that weren't tapped into at that moment in time. And equally important, it allowed us to to sell to customers without having locked up major distribution channels in China, the formal traditional channels. Once we gained traction with the customer base, then it made it a lot easier to then work with the formal distribution channels to set up retail stores around the country. And at this point, I think in 2020, in November now, 2021, uh, we have well over 2000 flagship stores. These are mono branded Tesla like stores all around China. How are you set up as an organization to understand local need? Because is it, and this, this sort of, this to me is very interesting, right? Because it's elementary on business model right? How you reach, how you set up in terms of HQ, a centralized, let's say headquarters with a, a sort of a hub and spoke approach. How do you, how do you account for those local tastes and then develop products within each one of those? Good question. Good question. In order to be able to gain knowledge on what's happening and what's needed from a product standpoint in Europe or the United States, is we work with each country that we that we sell into, we work with a local distributor. That distributor also has its sales team, a marketing team, usually its own product development team, obviously logistics team, and they are the ones that are giving us insights from that marketplace. And then we go all the way down to the dealers and surveying dealers and customers 
to learn from them. And then that all comes back to our Shanghai R&D Center for development. And we basically have 46, 45, 46 distributors that manage all those countries for us. So we look at them as like 46 satellite offices of our own team. Within, literally within the last few days, governments around the world are pushing carbon zero, net zero, whatever you want to call it, in terms of just environmentally friendly policies. A certain, I know in China, there there was there subsidies for people to move into electric. Are you seeing that sort of support? Are you tapping into those channels from a government perspective to help to help you know essentially build your story, to help with with expansion, to help with growth? Mm -hmm. So we don't work with any government agencies or, or government offices directly in any of our overseas that I know of. But that being said is I can say there are a few countries globally that are incredibly proactive about making the transition from petrol over to EV, for example, especially when it comes to two wheels. Four wheels, there's lots of programs around the world that are proactively trying to get people over to four-wheel EVs. When it comes to two wheels, a little bit less, but where you will find, surprisingly, is in a country like Italy. Amazing. Right now, if, if anyone wants to go buy an electric scooter, electric moped in Italy right now, the government gives a 30% subsidy to the price of that product, which basically brings EV and petrol in on par with each other in terms of pricing pricing, performance, everything along those lines at like at the checkout desk. And then over the, the lifetime of the vehicle, obviously the total cost of ownership of an EV is far lower um, than it is its petrol competitor. Similar things are happening in France and Spain where subsidies are coming into play to encourage people to adopt EV a little bit more slowly, a little bit more haphazard. But that being said, it's a very positive sign to see that happen. And the biggest thing that, that I think we need to understand is that coming out of COP26 and any of these other UN level climate change type of meetings is that most of people are moving into cities around the world. It's a fact, right? More than 60% of the world's population is living in some kind of urban metro area at this moment in time. And the solution to urban transportation problems is definitely not going to be just one one thing, right? There's going to be a, multi, a kind of multiplicity of, of modalities that allow us to move around cities. And most likely it's going to be on public transportation or small lightweight EV. And what people need to understand is that it's great. And that's really critical because if you're only making short journeys, like two, three, four kilometers in a single trip, you don't really need to be in a huge 2000 pound steel box. You can find a way to move around on an electric bicycle, an electric moped, maybe even an electric kick scooter. So it's making it, shall I say, socially acceptable that it's okay to ride a moped. It's okay to ride an electric scooter in your urban context. And that also requires cities and, and, and larger governments to make it safe for people to ride those types of vehicles in, in an urban setting. Like in China, we know that basically every major surface level road has a special lane for mopeds and, and electric bikes. It's completely separate from automobiles, but you rarely find that in Europe and you never find, almost never find it in the United States of America. And so if you really want to convert people over, there's a lot of other, you can say all you want at a global level, this is what we need to do. We need to make everything electric, but then you also have to put the rail, literally put the rails down to allow people to use the, the types of modalities that you're encouraging. And then also maybe give them some kind of financial incentive to make that move as well. Does that impact your business model? Because for example, if you're talking about, first of all, you, I, what you've described, I think it probably dovetails with how you call yourselves a mobility 
company more generally. And I wonder if that is baked into that is an idea that in the future, your business model might change. Where you're talking about this trends for urbanization, environment, more people more environmentally conscious, changing people's attitudes towards using these kinds of transportation. Do you see then a, a change in more in the future of being shared transportation solutions like this, which are better perhaps for the environment? And does that affect your business? Great question. I think the we're, it's already baked into our business model, and that and the reason I say that is is we have two main channels of way people use our vehicles today. One, you can walk up into a shop and buy one of our vehicles and own it. The other is you can use one of our dozens of sharing partners that we work with around the world, whether that's like a Lime or that's a Rebel in New York City or that's a Felix throughout Northern Europe. You can use one of their shared vehicles, which is primarily our vehicles. And so we're, we provide already a great, from day one, when we, when we walked out into the international business, we said that we need to be able to support these types of companies. And so what we have done is we built our vehicle. So it's basically plug and play into these operators. So they don't have to put any special extra IOT box to connect it to their system. No, you just literally take our bike and you plug in through our API and it's ready to go through sharing. And we, we, we realized very early that there are going to be customers users that are, are coming in for the very first time to use two wheel, it's going to come in through sharing. They don't want to own. They come from a generation where they just don't want to own. They just want to own it for moments of time. And then there's others that are a little bit older generation like ourselves that they're on the fence between ownership and, and sharing. So I think we've lined ourselves up for that. And, and we believe to, we want to support our sharing operators rather going out and doing it on our own because that's not our business. Our business is design and develop the best EV two wheels that we possibly can for every marketplace that we're entering into and every use case that we feel is a, a use case that is for the future. And the fact that you guys are now moving overseas and you're one of the largest mobility companies, it, there's something to celebrate there. But then understanding kind of the tensions and the perception of a brand China that it, that is happening outside of in other markets. Where's that balance? Even if you look at a company like DJI, where it is a successful company from Shenzhen, pretty much dominates the drone market. And if you look externally in a lot of their communication, they're not, they're not, you, you actually don't know where they're from. Okay. So how is, how are you guys balancing that, right? How you're positioning yourself, that aspect of it as you expand. Yeah. So from the moment we, we launched into overseas markets, we were already challenged when we entered Europe because years before, let's call it the early 2010s, there were a lot of opportunistic importers in Europe and opportunistic Chinese manufacturers of cheap electric motorcycles that were just exporting and importing into Europe. Most of those were huge failures, huge problems, and the marketplace was scarred with two-wheel two EV from China. At that moment, this is already, this is three, four years before we even arrived. So the moment we arrived in late 2016 and 17, my mission was to really showcase that China could actually deliver uh, a brand from China could actually deliver a great product <clears throat> that wasn't going to fail the consumer and the customer would be very happy with at a very affordable price. And we set out on a mission to do that by delivering good product that worked. And, and we worked with industry, you know, industry journalists to review our products, to give their fair opinion and frank opinion. And to be honest with you, at first it was mixed reviews, right? Not all positive, not all negative, but a mixture. 
And over time in 2017 and 2018, 2019, you know, we really developed a, a kind of a brand uh, recognition within key countries in Europe, Germany, France, Italy, um, the UK and elsewhere, where people really supported our product. And so we're happy to say that we're a Chinese company because we know we deliver great products. And customers and, and, and the industry will recognize great product no matter where it comes from in the world. And as long as I can continue to deliver on, on that promise to deliver good product at a fair price, I believe that the customer base and the industry itself will accept us, no matter the fact that we are based in mainland China. Were there, were there certain companies that you looked at uh, or, or still look at as benchmarking or looked at them for inspiration expand, and maybe they were Chinese and maybe they weren't, but ex when they, they expanded out of their home market globally, China, you might think of course, yeah, DJI or Xiaomi or some of the others. Were there certain companies you guys looked at more than others when you were thinking about expanding abroad? Honestly, no, yeah. because I, I don't, I think moving into mobility is a very special type of space that we were moving into and no, no Chinese company had done it at that moment in time. Mm -hmm. uh, we, I, I, I can honestly say, I think we were the first Chinese EV company to really push dominantly into overseas markets. Yes, there are NIO, NIO and Geely Electric and some of these others that are now beginning to push with a lot more capital resources than we have, there really are no brands that we could really emulate or follow unless you look way back in time and look at how like the Japanese brought like Honda, Yamaha, Suzuki out of Japan and into the global markets. And in many ways, honestly, I think we're like them. We're very scrappy, we're very lean. That's exactly what the Japanese did with their motorcycles back in, back in the 60s and early 70s and at one point in the 1960s honda was selling tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of honda cub little motorcycles in the united states of america my hats go off tremendously to them for that effort and so if we were to emulate any other company in our space it would probably be honda circa 1963 to 1975. sometimes ignorance is best because if you know everything you if you knew all the the roadblocks that were going to hit you maybe we would never have gone and done it. What sort of, if you had to distill it down, someone listening here in terms of their early stage startup, what sort of things could you have done better or anticipate? Good question. Let, let me start by saying that we didn't go into the overseas markets willy-nilly with no research or anything along those lines. It wasn't just a hope and a prayer. We went and looked at strategically what markets were the largest for two-wheel mopeds and motorcycles, petrol, and where would, if we were successful, where, what would have the largest impact um, on the brand globally and also the brand inside China. And so after looking the world over, yeah, there's huge markets for motorcycles and, and, and mopeds in Southeast Asia, but they're much lower on the adoption curve of EV and the significance it would play on our global brand would be fairly low. Just the, the state of reality of that region of the world. And then we honed our, our sites on Europe and we saw that there were a couple of key markets like Italy, France, Germany, the Netherlands, and, and Spain. Um, there were all large motorcycle and moped markets. Adoption of EV in all those countries, except for Netherlands and Germany, was quite low. So we, we knew we had a lot of work to do. But we said, okay, let's set our sights on Europe. And this is where we'll start because the, the, the total addressable market was large enough to, to make it economically viable for us. So first, find that a market that is, is that. And then from there, like I was saying a little bit earlier, is we set out on a mission to just 
from day one is to make sure that our product and our brand was recognized as high quality by the industry and the media. And that's really where we stick to this day. That was real. That has still the foundation to why I can continue to sell vehicles at the growth rate that we continue to do in Europe and other markets is that we did our foundation building from day one and never pulled our foot off the pedal in order to create this halo around the brand. Because you can go and do, you can spend millions and millions of dollars or even just hundreds of thousands of dollars on huge ad campaigns, but they're gone the moment you stop you know, funding that funding that platform, whether it's Facebook, Instagram, or whatever it might be. But looking back at, at, at where we from where we are today and looking at some of the some things that I would do a little bit differently, probably we originally, when we set out into the European market, we wanted to look at each urban market, key urban market, and focus in on like cities like Paris and Milan and, and Frankfurt and elsewhere. And, and stay honed in on those areas and really create like just density of, of sales of our vehicles. But we quickly had to move away from that because the adoption of EV just wasn't there at that moment in time in 2017 and 2018. So then we had to spread ourselves thinner throughout the larger markets of Germany and France and Italy. And I think if we had a little bit more patience in those early days, we would have a lot more market density in some of these key markets, which would allow just a natural flywheel of more and more customers coming online into our customer base, where now we have to, since we're such, we're spread out so far in all these markets, we continue to have to do more traditional marketing in order to be able to continue to continue our growth. You hit on something really interesting there in the beginning of your answer when you said you one of the key factors in you deciding which markets to expand into was whether it would help you back in your home market of China. And I wonder if you could elaborate a little more like that. I, I think I know where you're going with that, but I think that's a really key point for Chinese companies think when they're expanding out and that they may not always think about or other people watching them may think about. Absolutely. I, I think the Chinese companies look for every type of leverage in their domestic market, in their home market. Chinese companies look for every point of leverage that they can over their competition. And in the Chinese market, New is competing against a lot of other large players that have already existed for many years. But all of those large players have not gone out and tackled the key Western markets in Europe and the United States and elsewhere. They've dabbled their fingers into North Africa, Latin America, some markets in Southeast Asia, but with very little prevalence even in those markets. So when you go up, when New goes out into Europe, and you know, is able to launch a product at the Louvre in 2000, in 2009, 2018. This is setting a precedent as like we are a globally recognized brand that brings great product to global customers that have you know high expectations for product quality. So you can rest assured that New is delivering on quality product design um, at a global level. And so it adds another level of trust and, and, and verification back in the home market of China. American companies don't really have to worry about that because American companies don't go over to Germany and sell to Germans because it's gonna help solidify their sales messaging back in the United States of America. But the, the development cycle that China is still currently on, it necessitates that, especially when you move out of tier one and tier two cities in, in China and move into some of those smaller cities where customers are still heavily influenced by you know, Western cultures and, you know, and Western, I wouldn't say Western values, but Western cultures and, and Western desires at that moment in time, where people who are living in Shanghai and Beijing, but they're quite content with their own choices of product and brand. Um, and they've, they've evolved and developed as consumers at, by 2021 at this moment in time.
want to ask you about data because you're EV, right? There's a whole digital interface, just tracking on it in terms of being able to find your vehicle if, if anything happens. Can you talk yeah. a little bit about how data is collected and then, and, and really number one, and then number two, the whole date with GDRP in Europe with some of the new data regulations and policies that, that the central government here in China are starting to implement. Can you talk a little bit about data and, and, and how you as a company is managing that data? Yep. So New has two different silos for its data. It has its China silo and it has its overseas silo. So its China silo sits all on Chinese servers. Its overseas data sits all on AWS servers, either in Europe or in the United States of America, depending on the market. When it comes to the data that we are capturing on the vehicles, we're capturing the, the data, di- the basic data, vehicle diagnostics, everything from the battery to the motor and a handful of, of other things. Obviously, GPS is being collected for the user's sake of being able to use their app and understand where their vehicle is um, at any one moment in time. And when it comes to our overseas markets, especially in in Europe, and you bring up GDPR, it's something that I worked on from the moment I started with the company was making sure that all of our software, all of our cloud structure, and then all of our interfacing user apps and the vehicle itself, the hardware was compliant with GDPR. So every user, when they come in through our app, is signing through a GDPR disclosure, and all of that data is then sitting in a secure server on, on AWS. And to be honest, even more open is most of the data that's all, sorry, all the data um, up in the European servers is, is not really being utilized. It sits there primarily as for the customer's own experience with their app. And we have not been using that data for any other purpose than giving them that experience. In China, the data has been, we've been taking data since 2015 on almost 2 million vehicles. And we use that data. When you're interviewing, right, candidates, or for your team, for, for Xiaonu, what are, what specific skills are you looking for? What's the specific capabilities? What specific personality traits are you looking for? Skills can be taught. Absolutely taught. I look for values, right? Do they value change? Do they value hard work? Do they have an entrepreneurial spirit? An entrepreneurial spirit by my definition is really simple. Can they get things done with almost no resources? Can they move mountains with almost no resources? And if you have those simple values and virtues, I can, our team can teach you anything. And that's what I, when I sit down and interview people, I look for those simple values. And if they have them, then they can be a part of our team. It's a bonus if they have some of the skills already. So I don't have to teach them. We don't have to teach them everything now. And, but that's for my team, which is not a, a, a research and development team. And for R&D teams, I think it's it's heavily skill-focused type of, of, of interview process. But when it comes to you know developing a team that's taking a business overseas, when you're really building a lot of business, uh, business positions, so everything from marketing to branding to sales to operations, what you need is a, a, a system of values that everyone is sitting inside the same box and then everyone can build upon their skills over time. Because at the end of the day, most of the marketplaces that any business is operating in right now, the skills that you're hiring for today are probably obsolete in three years. Let's leave a more general way for people to reach out. You're welcome yeah, just, to, of course. LinkedIn, like, just connect with me on LinkedIn. LinkedIn. Yeah. Connect with me on LinkedIn. Some people can find you on LinkedIn, yeah. Maybe some of your listeners 
maybe looking for new opportunities to to work for a Chinese company going overseas, whether they're living in China now or, or based in an international market. We have a revolving door for recruiting in, in sales and marketing and branding and even product development. So if anyone out there that is listening to this that is a thought, maybe this type of company working for new could be an interesting opportunity for me, please get in touch with me and, and I'll put you in touch with our, our HR development team. Thank you, Joe, for coming on to our show today. It was some fantastic answers, very insightful in terms of where you started from and how you're taking Xiaomi uh, globally around the world. Thank you for coming on our show. Really appreciate that. Paul and Art, thank you very much for having me and hopefully we can catch up soon.